unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. In recent years, there has been a growing concern that the Supreme Court of India, the country's apex constitutional court, is not firing on all cylinders. Critics have argued that the court functions in an opaque manner, exhibits excessive deference to the executive, is far too slow in bringing cases to their logical conclusion, and is hampered by an excessive reliance on a class of elite lawyers who can get their cases heard for the right price. A new book, Court on Trial, a data-driven account of the Supreme Court of India, examines each of these critiques using hard data from the court's own files. One of the book's authors is the constitutional lawyer, Aparna Chandra. Aparna is an associate professor of law at NLS, the National Law School of India, and she has previously worked at the National Judicial Academy in Bhopal and the National Law University in Delhi, where she founded the Center for Constitutional Law, Policy, and Governance. To talk more about the court and some of the findings of her new co-authored book, I am pleased to welcome Aparna to the show for the very first time. Aparna, great to have you and congrats on the book. Thank you, Milan. Thank you for having me. I want to start this conversation off, Aparna, where the book itself starts. Uh, you, in the opening page of the book, note that uh, many people have said that the Indian Supreme Court is the most powerful apex court in the world. Yet, at the very same time, uh, qualitative and quantitative data that we have tell us it's an institution in crisis. So we're going to kind of dig into this, obviously, in much more detail uh, further in the conversation. But just tell us at the kind of macro level, what are some of the broad contours of the crisis that the Supreme Court faces? Right. And really, it's this crisis that's at the heart of the book. You know, describing this crisis is at the heart of the book. And to put it simply, um, the we, we argue in the book that the Supreme Court... Uh, is seeing a mismatch between the role that the court envisages uh, for itself and that's been envisaged for the court in the Constitution. There's a mismatch between that and the institutional structures and processes of the court, which are now working at cross-purposes with these with its uh, roles. So, uh, for example, um, we find that this is a court that wants to be an accessible court and provide access to justice, particularly to the most marginalized. And then we find that actually it's uh, admission procedures for appeals um, and it's privileging of elite lawyers is hampering its ability to provide access to justice for the most marginalized. Uh, we see that one of the main roles that the framers of the Constitution envisaged for the court was that it would hold the state to account for constitutional violations. And we're seeing, on the other hand, that uh, the court has a limited ability to enforce constitutional norms today um, because constitutional cases are being crowded out because of this appellate function of the court. Um, similarly, the court thinks they, uh, the, the, the court sets up for itself the ideal of providing timely justice, but uh, the backlog in the court is extensive and it's you know as high as as that in lower courts. Um, the court says that it's a rule of law court, right, and it's deciding cases on merits uh, of the case on the basis of what the law requires. And we find that the decisions, its decisions, are impacted by extraneous uh, considerations such as the stature of the lawyer or 
who the chief justice decides to allocate the case to or you know judge's own interest in in seeking um post-retirement sinecures because of which they might decide cases uh, in favor of or against the government. Um, similarly, I mean, so these are the kinds of institutional crises that we are, that we are seeing. Uh, and we argue that this has to do with the kind of structures and processes that the court has, um, as much as um, it might have to do with um, you know, the, uh, the norms that the court sets out. Uh, uh, on the judicial side, or the willingness of of, of uh, judges uh, to say take on the government. You know, the objective of your book is twofold, uh, because the first objective really is to bring sort of cold, hard, empirical data to bear, in an attempt to shine a light on the Supreme Court's functioning. But the second objective, of course, is to use the data and the insights uh, that one can infer from that data to try to inform or to suggest reforms the court could undertake to improve its functioning. I'm struck um, in reflecting on those two objectives, Aparna, by your observation in the book that despite this well-known crisis, in fact, justices of the court have have discussed this crisis in, in exactly some of the terms that you mentioned, there's been very little effort to plot a reform process. Um, you know, I, I, I remember that, you know, every time we see a new chief justice of India uh, take his or her post, um, they, they usually give a speech in which they talk about all the things that need to be fixed and very little gets done. Why, why do you think that is? three reasons, I would think. First is, um, again, structural. Chief justices are, you know, a lot of administrative power of the court is in the hands of chief justices, and chief justices really need to be motivated um, for any law reform to take place. But chief justices hold office for a very, very short period of time. On average, um, in the last few years, um, you know, the Chief Justice of India currently has a tenure of two years, and it's by far the longest that we've seen a Chief Justice be in office um, since 2010, uh, right? And so on average, a Chief Justice is in, is in office for less than a year. Um, so that's very little time for them to engage in any meaningful reform. Uh, the other thing is that uh, for good reason, reasons to do with judicial independence, uh, a law reform and reform at the Supreme Court and, and at the high courts has to come from within the judiciary. Judges are, um, you know, very jealously guard against any kind of intrusion from um, from politicians or from, from other avenues. Uh, but judges are not necessarily good policymakers um, in the sense that a uh, lot of the lot of the reform efforts that that judges have been championing are based on impressionistic anecdotal sort of you know stories of uh, things uh, very often war stories of you know this is something that happened to me when i was a lawyer or this is a case that i saw so on and so forth and there's very little um hard data uh, or evidence-based reform that, that judges have engaged in. And that failure is not just of judges, but that failure is also failure of the part of the profession that I belong to, which is the legal academy, because we really haven't done a good enough job um, in the past to bring out you know, solid data on the working of the courts. 
both to do with the fact that getting data on courts is very difficult, but also because um, we don't, uh, our, our legal education in the country is um, very insular. We don't really engage much with other disciplines, and that means that we don't get the benefit of other disciplines in how we um, evaluate the working of the court. You know, I, I found this anecdote of yours particularly telling. Uh, several years ago, the Supreme Court mandated the creation of a new national judicial data grid uh, meant to track the status of cases at the high court and district and subordinate court level. And it's pretty amazing if, if, if any of our listeners uh, want to, they can go on to this website, National Judicial Data Grid, and basically track cases all around India. But what's interesting uh, is that the Supreme Court itself uh, didn't put its own data uh, on the portal. Is that still the case? Uh, no. As of last month, or maybe three weeks ago, they did uh, put up their data on the National Judicial Data Grid as well. It's not as detailed yet as the high court and the trial court data, but I think uh, they're making incremental improvements there. Okay, well that's a, that's a good step, and you can count that as a, as an impact uh, uh, of your book. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe in fact this is a, a good place to just kind of pause and ask, which is, you know, this book, as the title suggests, is a data driven account of the Supreme Court of India, um, and maybe you could just tell us a little bit about uh, what data you're looking at and and where does it come from? Right. Um, so uh, the core of the book centers around uh, data that we've put together on the court. Uh, we did two things. Um, we, along with a bunch of uh, students at the Cornell Law School and at National Law University Delhi, um, read all judgments of the Supreme Court for a period of uh, five years. Um, that was about 6,000 odd judgments. And we coded them along various parameters, around 66 parameters each. Um, and then that's formed one data set that, that, that we've used. The other thing that we did was we scraped the uh, Supreme Court website um, for metadata on cases. So uh, things like when was it filed, when was it admitted, or whether it was admitted or not, um, when would it, was it disposed of, is it still pending, what is the subject matter, what is the procedural history, so on and so forth. Um, who the judges were, et cetera, et cetera. And that's about a million odd cases. Um, and that's the second data set. We have a few other data sets that we put together on, you know, who've been the judges of the Supreme Court and the High Court and things like that to help us with our analysis. So that's the that's the core of that data set. Um, we had to create these data sets ourselves because um, it's not really easily available. The court uh, does not really put out data, and the National Judicial Data Grid is an exception and a very recent one at that, uh, but it doesn't really put out data in a way that that is usable, right? Even if it puts out data, it's very aggregate data. So we didn't get, we didn't have uh, official disaggregated data. The other thing that we've relied on in the book is in the last few years in particular, we've had some very good uh, empirical studies on the working of the court by other scholars. So we've we've built upon uh, that scholarship as well. So that's that's really the, the data that's informing our book. I want to kind of get into the heart of the, the book and its argument. Um, and, you know, one of the things you note at the outset is there is this widespread perception that exists that, look, the Supreme Court of India uh, is a court for the Amadmi, right, for the common man, um, and that this perception actually is deeply rooted 
in the text of the Indian Constitution itself. Uh, maybe we could start there. You know, tell us a little bit about wh what are the factors that feed into this view that this is indeed a venue uh, that is there to serve, you know, uh, the 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 regular average citizen of the country. Um, right. I mean, this is this is some this is an image that judges have um, consciously cultivated and courted, um, and this 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 conscious sort of crafting of image um, starts towards the end of the 1970s and the early 1980s, because if you remember, till then, uh, particularly during the um, prime ministership of um, Indira Gandhi, uh, Indira Gandhi's government was uh, often at loggerheads with the, uh, with the Supreme Court. Um, and her uh, the issue with the Supreme Court was that the court was striking down many of her policies, uh, which she thought were very progressive policies aimed at the, you know, aimed at the common person for the benefit of the common person. And so um, there was an impression that was created and, and, and you know, judges have alluded to this in their judgments, uh, where they said that uh, people think that we are a forum for the legal quibbling of men with long purses. Right, the idea that we are um, really this elite forum um, for you know princes and uh, the property classes and uh, and not for the not the not for the common person. And of course, uh, this gets reinforced during the emergency when the Supreme Court absolutely capitulates to the uh, to the Indira Gandhi government. So post that. Um, Supreme Court judges very consciously, and they've written about this very expressly, they've written about this in their, you know, extracurial writing in the articles that they've written outside of their judgments, very consciously set out to craft a more people-centric and a more people-oriented image of the court, that this is a more accessible court, this is a court that's there for the common person, and that that it has its own basis of legitimacy. It is the people's court. It speaks in the name of the people and it speaks for the interests of the people, just as the government does, right? And and you see, and you know, probably the most most famous outshoot of this um, this uh, crafting of image is the public interest litigation movement, which starts at this time, um, with the idea that. Uh, if a person, if if a person or a group of people cannot approach the Supreme Court because they do not have uh, the ability to access the court, um, someone else can, you know, in public interest, file on their behalf uh, to ensure that their rights are protected. Right, and uh, on the on the appellate side, um, the court does something similar. It says that you know anyone who has a grievance in any any court uh, from any court uh, uh, in the land can come to us, and we'll be you know we'll we'll really look into these matters, and we'll we'll correct errors if we can. The problem with this, of course, is that the court um, does the basic error of confusing access to the Supreme Court and access to justice. Right, because um, access to the Supreme Court does not amount to access to justice for the bulk of the population. Access to justice means access at the court of first instance, which is their local district court, the the, the trial court. And as the current Chief Justice was saying uh, in some forum a few months ago, that for the bulk of our population, the court of first instance is the court of last resort because they don't have the ability to appeal upward. However, the way, the way in which the Supreme Court has uh, constructed its own jurisdiction is 
as if uh, access to justice is to be provided by providing access to the Supreme Court. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's the that's the reason why it takes so many cases. That's the reason why it takes so many cases, even though it generally finds that the cases that it has taken were rightly decided by the lower courts on closer examination. And it has a very, very low reversal rate because its reversal rate is somewhere around 55 odd percent, which means that, uh, you know, it's almost a flip of a coin, whether the court will reverse the lower court judgment or uh, or uphold it. And you would think that if it had a robust filtering process, it would only be taking those cases where it, there was a strong chance that an error had occurred in the lower courts. Uh, that's that's not the case. And, and that has to do with the fact that the court wants to, uh, you know, be a more open, accessible court and take on as many matters as it, as it can. But that comes at a cost. And that's the cost that we've explored throughout the book. I mean, one of the most interesting findings uh, in the book is that uh, your data find that the poor and disadvantaged may not be more likely to win in the end, but they are more likely to receive a full hearing for the Supreme Court, right? And and yeah. and so this reinforces the notion of a people's court that uh, people who bring cases, um, despite um, not necessarily coming from, say, you know, uh, uh, elite institutions or what have you, um, will get a hearing even if they don't win, and and that kind of reinforces this. But at the same time, uh, you cite a study of thousands of Supreme Court opinions over many decades, which finds that. Uh, many, uh, in some years, more than half of Supreme Court opinions contain no citation to legal precedent. They are not settling, settling matters of law. Uh, and this you use to argue um, uh, is, is a, a way in which the court actually hurts the poor and disadvantaged. And I wonder if you could help us uh, unpack that a little bit. Why is it uh, the case that if the court is not referring to legal precedent or making law, uh, that this is hurting the poor and disadvantaged? Right. Um, let's start with um, the possibly um, uncontentious proposition that the court has limited amounts of time, and there are only so many cases that it can it can do justice to in terms of, you know, giving it a full and fair hearing. Uh, the question is, what cases does the court take then? Um, the Supreme Court has set itself up as an error correction court, right? Anytime I think there's an error, I will correct that error uh, so that uh, that particular case has a proper resolution. Uh, and one may say, you know, what's what's wrong with that? That's, that's a good thing uh, for the court to do. Except that uh, the Supreme Court hears a very, very minuscule number of cases as compared to all the judgments that are coming out of the of the high courts and the and, and the trial courts. So the Supreme Court might be better positioned to give us those, um, you know, to 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 prioritize those cases which require laying down clear guidelines and clear norms on how these lower courts should be deciding cases. What the court is doing instead is seeking to correct error in each individual case. And just because it sees something as an erroneous decision doesn't mean that the decision is necessarily erroneous. It's just that, you know, that's that's that judge's opinion uh, in, the, in, in the Supreme Court. So what we end up with is a system 
where the court is taking on a lot of cases where there's no new um, you know, question of law involved, no need to clarify what the law is. The court is only looking at whether this law was properly decided in the facts of the case. And that means that um, the court is very often not citing any other case. This is a judgment that is never cited again in the future. And that means that it's not, not uh, adding to the that bulk of cases, which is laying down clear guidelines for the lower courts to decide cases. I think the clearest example of this is in bail jurisprudence, right? We've all seen cases where, you know, high profile cases where people have to go all the way to the Supreme Court to get bail. And that's very unique. Very few apex courts in the world are involved in deciding whether a person should be granted bail in the facts of a case without any larger question of law involved. And that's because the court has just consistently refused to put down clear guidelines on when should bail be granted or not granted. And 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 so so this this taking on these taking on this error correction uh, role comes at that cost. It comes at the cost of not having the time to take on these uh, cases where it can lay down clear guidelines that can then guide the lower courts. And I just want to say also it comes at an institutional cost because uh, it's getting these uh, bulk of cases. Judges are not able to decide those cases. So what has happened over time is that the court has expanded. It's It started out with eight judges. It is now at 34 judges. Uh, there have been noises made recently that we should increase further increase the number of judges at the Supreme Court. They don't sit together, unlike the U.S. Supreme Court, where all the judges sit together. The Indian Supreme Court sits in smaller benches of two uh, or three judges, mostly two judges. Um, they all off deciding uh, their own thing and uh, very often in diametrically opposite ways, which means that there is actually it's adding to the conceptual confusion that we have in the law, because you have for any point in law, I can point you to, uh, you know, diametrically opposite Supreme Court judgments, um, which will just add to the conceptual confusion for the uh, for the judge down the uh, in, in the high court or, or in the trial court. So this kind of case by case rescue, right, I'm, I'm going to correct the error and do justice in individual cases uh, on the facts of that case comes at this comes with this cost attached that it's crowding out those cases where uh, you know a norm new norm has to be set and it is adding to conceptual confusion because you might because it's leading to inconsistency in in the jurisprudence of the court Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. I'm glad that you mentioned this idea of expanding the number of judges, right? As you mentioned, the court began with eight justices. It now has 34. Um, and uh, despite that growth, the average time it takes from the date of a decision by the court 
uh, uh, below, uh, so lower court to the date of decision by the Supreme Court is something like 1,542 days uh, you document, which is a, which a pretty shocking figure when you stop and think about it. Um, and uh, it seems from your book that uh, this is not really just a question of adding more judges. In fact, there are deeper structural causes which create such inordinate delays. And I'm wondering if you could just help us understand, as you try to pick apart uh, this kind of tangled web that leads to these these, these procedural delays, what, what is really to blame? Right. Um, just Just... Looking at that figure once more, you know, um, this figure of a thousand odd days is also a figure of the time that it takes for the cases that are disposed to be disposed, right, on average. But there is also this large uh, chunk of cases that are pending and that have been pending in the courts for the really longest time. We're not even accounting for those. In fact, the most delayed cases are arguably the most important cases because these are the cases where the court has to set up a seven or a nine judge bench, which means that really they are the most important cases that are pending in the uh, system. And those are the ones that are the most, the most delayed. Um, so uh, the, the, the cost here is incredibly high also uh, for, you know, just ensuring that there's enforcement of constitutional norms. Um, with respect to the reasons behind uh, this, uh, these these kinds of delays, there are many. For the longest time, uh, the court also just refused to acknowledge that th this was a Supreme Court problem, right? That's why, you know, again, the National Judicial Data Grid didn't have data from the Supreme Court because delays and arrears were seen as a trial court problem or a, maybe a high court problem. And our data shows that it's as bad in the Supreme Court as it is in the trial courts and the high courts. The second um, uh, issue was that... Um, very often this was the the problem of delay has been seen historically as a problem of resources right uh, there aren't enough judges they don't have enough clerks there aren't enough courtrooms uh, there aren't enough computers they don't have the latest technology uh, and you add all of that and then somehow magically you'll get better judgments um that's not the case the uh, what, what we find is that there is, uh, apart from, there might be legitimate uh, resource constraints, but there's also a cultural problem here. The cultural problem is that um, the inside the court culture, inside the way uh, the courts work, the litigant is quite marginal to how the, um, the court functions. It's a very lawyer-centric and a judge-centric uh, system where the lawyer's convenience is um, privileged or the judge's convenience is privileged over uh, everything else. And so you have uh, judges, uh, you have judges who are very happy to grant adjournments. Uh, that's something that, and there's a sort of an adjournment culture um, in in uh, courts. And it's not just the Supreme Court, it's the high courts and the trial courts as well. It's almost an expectation that uh, adjournments are there for the asking. Um, uh, and... Uh, uh, so, so that's that's definitely one one um, uh, part of it. The other part of it is the in the uh, resistance that courts have seen, or you know, just the hesitation that the courts have had uh, towards enforcing time limits 
there is an understanding again uh, india has had uh, generally an oral advocacy culture in its courts uh, and there is this idea that oral advocacy is better than written advocacy and that uh, each stage at each stage for every matter uh you know lawyers have to be given the time to argue their case in person orally um and given as much time as they need uh and that obviously again comes at a cost uh because time is uh, not infinite uh there have been again very very recent attempts in the last year or so at the supreme court level for the most important cases such as uh constitution bench cases to enforce some kind of time limits but this is really um for the bulk of the decisions that the court is taking and the bulk of the matters that the court is hearing there is no such kind of a time limit uh, enforced so as a result of that um you know there is a it's it's uh, it's very easy to um get cases delayed and just play that game of delay delay benefits the the side that that uh, want that has approached the court it benefits the side that does not that wants to delay legal uh, liability and uh, it's very easy to play that game in the supreme court Aparna, I want to ask you about a pretty sensational episode in the Supreme Court's recent history. Uh, you talk in detail about the unprecedented press conference held back in 2018 by four justices of the court who went public with their concern that the then Chief Justice of India, Deepak Mishra, was misusing his powers as the quote-unquote master of the roster to selectively assign cases to certain judges in a hope that um, they would produce certain outcomes. Um, I think, you know, people may have heard this term master of the roster before, but 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 maybe you could just help us understand a little bit about the powers the chief justice has in formulating benches. You know, what exactly can the chief justice do and what is it that these four justices were so upset about? So to answer that question, let me take you back to 1950 when the Supreme Court is set up. It has eight seats um, on the court, and uh, someone has to exercise the administrative powers of the court that's given to the chief justice. But uh, there's no sense that the chief justice has a lot of discretion in how they're exercising those powers. So, for example, um, there's of these eight judges, uh, you know, five or six are sitting to decide constitutional matters. The rest might be sitting in a smaller bench to decide uh, appeals. But because broadly the chief justice has to decide who to put on that constitutional bench and who to put on, on, on that bench of five judges and who to put on the smaller bench, there isn't really that much of a discretion. But as the number of cases increases and as the number of judges increases, what starts happening is that the court starts sitting in smaller and smaller benches and it's hearing more and more cases. As a result, this power that the chief justice has of deciding which judge will hear what cases becomes an enormous power. Now, on a regular basis, this power is decided in a very automated way. In fact, uh, the, the, the Supreme Court registry has some computer programs which, which uh, decides this. So what the chief justice will do is the chief justice will say that such and such judge will uh, decide criminal matters or such and such bench of judges will decide, will, will uh, hear all the criminal um, cases. And uh, the registry will forward all the uh, criminal matters to that 
that bench. That's regular, that's subject matter, sort of rostering, and that's fairly routine. But where the Chief Justice's power becomes particularly significant is when a larger bench has to be set up because in a particular case, it's found that uh, you know, there are conflicting decisions or it's a very important constitutional matter which requires setting up a, a special bench of five or more judges. Uh, it's called a constitution bench. And in those cases, uh, the, the Chief Justice has to set up a particular bench, staff that bench with judges, and then post and ask them to hear a specific matter. So the Chief Justice knows what matter they're going to hear, and uh, the Chief Justice has to decide uh, who's going to hear that matter. And it's this this power, this, this, this master of the roster power of allocating uh, specific cases to benches um, to hear uh, is the, the master of the roster power that's become incredibly um, controversial because it gives the chief justice two specific um, points of intervening in these very important uh, cases. One is till the chief justice sets up this bench, the matter cannot be heard. And so, uh, for example, uh, the Supreme Court recently concluded hearing the uh, the decision the 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 370 matter, the abrogation of Article 370. That case was filed in 2019. Uh, you know, within a day or two of um, uh, of the abrogation, but the court heard it only in 2023, uh, four years later, because the bench was set up now. Similarly, the court is going to start hearing the electoral, uh, the uh, court is now, is now heard the electoral bonds matter, even though the uh, case and uh, case was filed right when the electoral bond scheme was uh, was set up, was the, was uh, was promulgated. So this is just to say that it, the Chief Justice gets to decide almost the timing, uh, the time at which some of the, the most crucial questions that are facing the country, the facing the polity, are going to be uh, decided and that can be that can be an incredibly powerful um weapon in the arsenal of the of of the chief justice but the other thing that the chief justice gets to decide is who will sit on that bench um and what we found uh, in our study and you know this is confirmed by other studies as well is that the chief justice uh does two things right one is they disproportionately put themselves on these constitution benches. So in about 88% of all constitution bench matters, the chief justice, you will find the chief justice um, on the bench. Now, um, this may have been okay if the chief justice was, you know, staffing these constitution benches, these large benches on the basis of seniority, but that's not the case because the next senior most judge after the chief justice is four times less likely to be on the bench as compared to the chief uh, justice. And there is no seniority norm. Our data shows there is no seniority norm that the chief justice is following. There's no other, you know, objectively discoverable norm that the chief justice is following except for one thing. The chief justice is almost never in a minority in these decisions. The chief justice is never, almost never dissenting in these uh, in these cases. In fact, in the history of constitution uh, benches uh, so far, and we are talking about um, around 2,000 constitution benches since the uh, since the uh, since 1950, um, chief justices have been in dissent only 13 times, only 13 times in this, in, in about 2000 odd cases when they are on these benches about 88% of the time, no other judge 
no other judge can equal this kind of a record. What does that mean? That the chief justice is constructing, who, ha, who is constructing benches, happens to construct benches in a way that they can always carry the majority with them. And that seems to suggest that, um, and that seems to suggest that chief justices are constructing benches in ways that suit their preferences and suit their preferred outcomes. I just want to ask you, because it's been five years since that famous press conference, did it have any long-term impact? The immediate consequence was, of course, that an impeachment motion was moved um, in the Rajya Sabha against uh, Justice Chief Justice Deepak Mishra. That didn't go anywhere. But... Um, Till then, this, you know, the subject-wise rostering, which judge or which bench is hearing what kinds of subject matters, that was made public. Uh, but later that year, two, uh, two cases go up before the Supreme Court where um, folks are asking for some accountability for how the chief justice exercises the master of the roster power. And the court absolutely refused to put any constraints or any accountability for how the chief justice uh, is to exercise that that power. Um, they said that, you know, the chief justice is a high constitutional functionary and we, we should trust uh, the chief justice to exercise this power um, in a... Uh, in, in an appropriate uh, way. And just by way of contrast, um, last month, the uh, Pakistan Supreme Court um, upheld a law that uh, that sought to limit the chief justice's uh, master of the roster powers, the power to allocate uh, uh, cases, and created an institutional structure um, by which these decisions will be, these allocation decisions will be made. The Indian Supreme Court has absolutely refused uh, to do that. So um, in the long term, um, not really. There hasn't been too much of a movement. Um, in fact, uh, one of the judges in the press conference was Justice Ranjan Gogoi, uh, and he was the next in line to become the chief justice. And the expectation was that once he becomes the chief justice, uh, things might change. Uh, not only did he not uh, change anything, but as we know very famously, um, when there was an allegation of sexual harassment against him, he he set up and presided uh, himself on a bench that was hearing that matter. So, yeah, if anything, things have gotten worse, not better. And, and, and we're, we'll, we'll maybe come back to his example uh, when we talk about what happens to judges after retirement, because he was then uh, shortly yeah. after retirement given a ticket to st stand in the Rajya Sabha representing the ruling party. Um, before we get to that, let me just ask you about this issue of appointment, because I think it's pretty well known that in India, judges are responsible for appointing other judges. It's a system that the Supreme Court itself has evolved through a body known as the Collegium. Uh, you note in the book that that, look, neither the executive nor the parliament has much of a role to play. But I wonder whether you would say that that's changing, right? So, you know, I recall a reading work by your fellow uh, legal scholar, Alok Prasanna Kumar, who's shown that, look, the executive is, in fact, using its powers to shape who does and who doesn't serve on the court uh, by using a pocket veto, by slow walking certain uh, security clearances and security checks and so on and so forth. To what extent do you think that situation has changed? Are we seeing a greater executive imprint on the selection of judges? Oh, absolutely. Um, so in the last um, nine odd years, in fact, beginning in uh, 
2014, we've seen a spate of instances where the executive has either um, returned a recommendation that the collegium has made um, uh, or just sat on a recommendation, right? So exercising almost pocket veto. Um, and while the, the 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 body of case law through which the court evolved this collegium system had said that the executive could, you know, uh, return a recommendation for the for the collegium's uh, reconsideration, if that decision, uh, if the if the collegium reiterates that decision, uh, then the executive is bound to accept it. And we've seen actually a few, uh, quite a few instances where, despite the collegium having reiterated a recommendation, the um, executive has not acted on on uh, on those recommendations. So it's very much a blatant violation, not just of the spirit of you know judicial of judicial independence, but the letter of the law as laid down by the Supreme Court. But then that means that we've ended up in the um, worst of all worlds because the the big justification for the collegium system is that it secures judicial independence. You know, the collegium system is a, a very anomalous institution. It's a uh, it's completely insular. It's very opaque. Um, there's no transparency and therefore no accountability for how it is making decisions. Um, uh, who, why is it selecting a few judges? Why is it not selecting other judges? So on and so forth. Right. So there's been a lot of criticism of the uh, collegium system, and uh, those who support the collegium system. Uh, agree that there are lots of problems with the collegium system, but the only thing going for it is the fact that it protects judicial independence. And unfortunately, we are now in a situation where even that is not the case, because the executive is uh, interfering quite significantly in um, uh, judicial appointments through these mechanisms of pocket vetoes, of uh, of um, not, uh, you know, of, of returning recommendations, of, of sitting on them, so on and so forth. And uh, the Supreme Court, is looking into this question on the judicial side, but for the last two odd years, the court has been threatening the executive that it will take very strict action against the executive. It's just refused to do that. I mean, it's, it's not it's not really taken any uh, strict measures uh, against the executive. I mean, last year, uh, around this time, um, in in this matter that's pending before the court, the uh, Supreme Court had said that, you know, we might have to take very strong action against the government if the government uh, doesn't clear these uh, recommendations. And I read last week, the same judge in the same matter, again, threatening the government and saying, that you know we are we're going to take very strong action against you if you don't uh, follow through. Um, the question to ask is really why why is the court allowing this to happen? So um, yeah, I mean um, the uh, executive is interfering. The court can do something about it. It's choosing not to. You present evidence that justices, particularly as they near the age of retirement, proactively refrain from taking anti-government positions perhaps in order to ensure that they will be considered for post-retirement jobs, right? And this is especially pronounced in non-election years because those are moments when justices know pretty well which government is going to be making decisions about their futures. Um, and what I find so interesting about this is that um, this is not a case where the executive is formally interfering, but rather justices are deciding ex ante to show deference. Uh, is there anything that can be done to remedy this? Um, I should say that uh, 
that much of this work has actually been done by colleagues in Singapore, um, Shubankar Dam, Madhavane, and their co-authors who have a fantastic paper called Jobs for Justices, and we've relied on on um, their uh, sort of excellent study and data. Um, the uh, uh, the question on what can be done, we have a few suggestions. One is that we need to raise the retirement age for judges from 65 to 70. 65 is uh, as the retirement age places the Indian Supreme Court as an outlier amongst apex courts around the world. It's uh, it's on the lower end of retirement age for for judges. 70 is more at par with where other um, other apex court judges are in terms of retirement. Uh, 65 was put in into the constitution looking at the um, you know the average lifespan of indians during uh, you know in 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 the late 1940s and clearly that's not that's not uh, uh, a parameter that we can use anymore um what a later retirement age might mean of course is that then they don't need uh, post retirement uh, uh, jobs uh, because uh, they will they, they they have more time uh, to uh, spend in uh, in a in a position of uh, of prestige and of value um, till till they are uh, 70 uh, the other um, the other policy position that has been uh, frequently advocated and and we agree with is a cooling off period a mandatory cooling off period of about um, 2 years um, also, where judges cannot accept um, post-retirement uh, uh, retirement jobs, um, to ensure that you know this kind of an issue where uh, judges know who the who the government is and what kind of positions are available, and then they they pander to that. Uh, that's something that can be uh, that that can be uh, addressed. And a third element that we put in is in terms of post-retirement um, benefits. To say that uh, the post-retirement benefits again, this is this is a common thing that's done across the world to ensure judicial independence uh, is to say that the post-retirement benefits would be commensurate with the kind of benefits that one has uh, during their uh, tenure on the court, so that there is a lesser need or incentive to seek post-retirement jobs. Um, I will say though that um, uh, all of this only addresses, uh, you know post-retirement jobs with the government. It does not address a problem that we actually haven't looked at, which is the problem of post-retirement jobs with the private sector. And um, all that many judges who are not with the government are providing you know, arbitration services or writing opinions for the private sector. So, Aparna, I want to ask you one last question, um, which is a kind of question about the future. Um, you know, uh, uh, indulge me if you would, you know, put yourself in the shoes of the current uh, Chief Justice of India. Uh, if you could move a small set of concrete reforms that would enhance the performance of the court, uh, not just in the short term, but really in a lasting way, what are some of the, say, top two or top three agenda items that would be on your list to push for? Top of the agenda would be to create a permanent constitutional division or a permanent constitutional bench, um, which can be insulated from the appellate side of the court so that the court can perform its constitutional function of holding the state to account for constitutional violations. I mean, if there is 
that is the biggest rationale for the court. That is the biggest role of the court. And if the court's failing to do that, then um, I think the the first, the the the, the most uh, important task of reform has to be secure has to be to secure that role. And I would think that therefore uh, setting up either a permanent constitution bench or a constitution division, which has its own staff and has has its own, uh, you know, uh, there's certain judges that are appointed to that side uh, of the Supreme Court uh, is something that's doable. That's within the uh, powers of the Chief Justice to do, um, and that can be done um, pretty pretty rapidly. Um, the other one which will require some buy-in from the bar, um, from the Supreme Court bar, is to put in, um, you know, restrictions on oral advocacy and move to a more documentary practice. Uh, this will have multiple, we, we, we make the point that this will have multiple uh, benefits for the court. One is that the court can focus its time in court, judges can focus their time in court um, in really um, uh, probing the case rather than hearing the entire case afresh. Um, and they, they can make better use of their, uh, of their uh, time. It will reduce the influence of um, uh, of elite lawyers who right now depend a lot on their face value, their fam the, the familiarity that judges have with them um, in sort of um, in, in in securing favorable outcomes for their uh, for their clients, and of course that will have an impact. We think on uh, how long cases take um, in the in, in in the court. So if if I had to push for two um, agenda that two agenda items that were within the control of the Supreme Court, um, then these would be the the ones. Um, you know, oral, uh, uh, restricting oral advocacy and putting in time limits uh, on oral advocacy, moving to a more documentary practice uh, at the Supreme Court, but first and foremost, creating a permanent constitution bench or uh, constitution division, which is insulated from the appellate practice of the court. My guest on the show this week is the legal scholar Aparna Chandra. She is an associate professor of law at the National Law School of India. She's also the co-author with Sheetal Kalantri and William Hubbard of Court on Trial, a data-driven account of the Supreme Court of India. Aparna, I just want to congratulate you and your co-authors on what is a really elegant book, which has a ton of data, but yet you don't feel overwhelmed because the way in which you present it is so clear and um, so measured. Um, it was just really a delight to read it. And, and I hope that um, uh, those who can do something about the reform of the Indian judicial system um, take you up on some of your recommendations. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you, Milan. Thank you so much for having had me and for those kind words. Grant Masha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HD Smartcast original and is available on hdsmartcast.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we mentioned on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthamasha.com. Tim Martin is our audio engineer and Mira Verghese is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.